Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein A Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science. In the studio with me is Dr. Ewan. Good morning, sir. Good morning. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. It feels like it's been a while. I don't think it's been any longer than normal, but <laughs> I've missed you. I can tell you missed me. I missed you too. <laughs> yeah. uh, Dr. Jen, you've been on an adventure. I have. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Yeah. I've also missed you in case you were wondering. Oh, that's nice to know. Yeah. Well, I just thought I should let you know. Yeah, well, I missed you, but you were in Antarctica. So I that's, was. I think, you know, you kept sending me pictures. Yeah, I'm sorry. Like these teasing photographs of, <laughs> oh, look what you're missing the other one. I'm like, what is that, a penguin? Uh, whatever. Just a few penguins. A couple of seals, a couple of icebergs. What else? Yeah. I think, and then I get these teasing things. Do you want to do a video connection? We're like, yeah. And I realized I responded to you eight hours after you'd sent me a message. <laughs> well, that's that the problem when you're on out. South American time, right? You send a message and eight hours later you hear back from Australia yeah. and it takes a while. <laughs> it didn't really work. But anyway, it's all good, folks. We've got a big show uh, lined up today. We're going to learn about some new things that are happening down at ScienceWorks in the coming weeks. Uh, we also have a guest uh, coming in with her mum. Uh, uh, scientists and patients and all things. We're going to be talking. It's going to be a really hardcore discussion about, I think, uh, health mm-hmm. and uh, how science plays a role or not mm-hmm. um, in healthcare. So that will be cool. And then we'll do some news and so forth. And then Jen, if we give her a couple of minutes, she might tell us a bit about her Antarctic adventures. Oh, a couple of minutes, you know. Yeah, should be should be fine. But first of all, in the studio we have May Liao from uh, Museum Victoria, an exhibitions experience developer. May, welcome to the studio. Hi, Dr. Shane. Oh, hang on, let me just <laughs> get, try that again. Hi, Dr. Shane. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great. Now, great to have you on. An exhibitions experience developer. I want that title. I want the word experience in my in my title. Tell us what what does that mean? Oh, look, I joke that it's high stakes Pictionary, really, <laughs> <laughs> and writing tweets for walls. That's right, pretty yeah. much what this job is about. Um, but yeah, it's really a lot of fun. I get to come up with the concepts for exhibi- uh, for exhibitions, yep. um, individual science interactives. I get to test them and prototype them, um, um, try them out with visitors, um, do some yeah audience testing, and then um, yeah put them out in the floor. This time I've even been building them for right, their playground. Right. So yeah, getting really hands on. Um, yeah. And, yeah, Tweets for Walls is trying to be as succinct as possible yep. um, because often the written interpretation or the visual interpretation um, is, um, you know, competing for visitors' attention with the actual exhibit itself because they just want to mm. kind of get in there mm. and, and try the thing. Um, but the interpretation is also there to kind of enhance their experience. What, what can they try um, and, or, you know, what's the science behind the um, particular interactive yeah. that they're working with, and you know, often we'll find that parents will will read that interpretation out to their kids, especially <laughs> right. if they think their kid is you know doing doing something wrong with the exhibit or not you know not um, yeah. not trying not working with it in the right in the right way. So yeah. right. there's always a couple of kids who read first too. I yes. mean, they're rare. But they they exist, right? The ones who read the you know, I know sometimes even when I go to national parks, there'll be there'll be a kid who is reading that plaque about the organ pipes. Everyone else is climbing the organ pipes, and there's some. There's always some people who read the stuff. I right? was probably one of those kids. That's probably why I'm in this job now. <laughs> That's great. And before we get on to the new exhibit that uh, you've got down there, I mean, how do you 
how do you know what audience to sort of gear these things to? Because you have everything from like two-year-olds or younger to, you know, sometimes adults. Um, like because sometimes there's the night events and various things. I mean, where, where do you steer the exhibitions in terms of the audience? Because it's so vast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, ScienceWorks' target audience is uh, from 6 to 12. Okay. And so this exhibition skews a little bit younger from 6 to 10. Right. Um, however, we've just been finding that there are so many younger kids coming in as well. So, you know, you think mums and bubs um, during the week. And we've had lots of events like Little Kids Day In where we close off ScienceWorks um, for, uh, to school bookings and we just have um, kids under the age of five coming in. And that was yep. last Friday. ScienceWorks was packed. Pram five Central. Year old, just five-year-olds, under fives. Under fives, under yeah. Under fives, wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the um, things that I've been working on with Air Playground um, because you may not know that it uh, was first at ScienceWorks in 2019 and, and 2020 before it was cut short mm, due to world mm. events. And our members have just been clamouring for it to come back. Yeah. Um, and uh, some feedback that we got was that they, you know, wanted it to be a little bit more accessible for younger kids as mm. well as the target age range um, between yeah. 6 to 10. Um, and we just, you know, we find that that age range, kids are super curious about science. They kind of mm. don't really yet have that like, oh, I don't know if I'm good at science yet. Mm. They, 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 mm. They're um, just like, you know, having so much fun exploring uh, and being creative and being curious. And, you know, that's the age that we want to target. Yeah, target yeah. Them, uh, get them early. And, we're, okay, we're going to talk about this new exhibit. Yeah, well, this repeat, in a sense, um, I'm sure it's very different. So yeah. it's all about air. Yes. Um, what, give, us, give us some highlights. What, what will people see? Okay, so as you walk in, visitors will see objects hovering in midair, they can place material in fast-moving air jets. They can use their whole body to squish a giant inflatable sculpture. They can launch balls sky-high with compressed air. And they can craft paper aeroplanes to throw into this giant pit. And right. over time, as people throw the paper aeroplanes into the pit, it becomes this graph of, um, you know, what's the most common distance that people can throw. Right, right. Yeah. And so... Have you got like a wind tunnel type scenario set up there? Like, a, yeah, because that I mean, I'm, that's the part I want to <laughs> have a play with. So, it's not quite a wind tunnel in the sense that, um, you know, that you might test for, you know, cars, car aerodynamics yeah, yeah. or plane aerodynamics. Um, we've got these three giant industrial fans that are kind of like keeping this rainbow piece of fabric, um, uh, uh, uh a float like a right. like a sail right. yep. um, and you know as you walk into the space um it, there's just a, such a high volume of air you're feeling it kind of gusting around you so the exhibit's actually called gust but i've been noticing something really weird that the, that our listeners might be able to help out with if they ever come and visit at scienceworks so we've got three large fans and they're all kind of, they're all running at the same speed but then if you walk it in front of the middle one there's this kind of weird dead spot, kind of oh, like the eye of a eddies. storm. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice. It's so interesting, and it's yeah. yeah. You want you to have see to something? Go in and Take a, get some yeah. little foam balls. Exactly. And actually, no. Better still for the kids. Get a bean bag and explode <laughs> it in the middle of that area, and just see if oh. any of the little beans just sit in the eddy. Exactly. You, I don't know how I floor stuff. Are you stuff. picking up afterwards, Shane? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what I floor stuff or think about that. But they can They do have. We do have scarves, so they can bring oh, those cool. scarves in, the, and those scarves will just kind of sit in the middle. That's wild. Yeah. 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 
I have to ask you about the flapping bat paper aeroplane. Um, as a biologist, that just uh, yeah, I saw that in the in the you know the brief that yeah. we saw, and I said how, why, so how did that <laughs> how did that come to be? So it sounds actually, amazing. Our project manager, she saw it on Facebook, and she said we have to include this plane. So we have um, four different examples. So we, originally we had three different example planes. Um, you know the classic Dart, um, the Suzanne, which was once a world. Um, world record winner and yeah. you know the blunt nose but then the flapping bat is so cool because when you throw it it actually yeah. flaps and i was like why how does it do that so i had to actually ask my um aerospace engineer friend <laughs> because I'm like, i can't figure this out and he says it's actually doing something that we're trying to prevent which is something called aeroelastic flutter and hmm. you definitely kind of don't want things to flap Mm. on a plane because no, that's definitely yeah. Not. yeah that's going to cause some stress um and so what he explained is that because this flapping bat if you imagine like most planes are kind of pointy and long yep this plane is really wide it's got these really wide wings and so when you're throwing it you're meant to throw it with the wings kind of up in this weird v shape and then you're meant to throw it with this flick of a wrist and then as you throw it the wings fold up towards each other and the center of lift, it shifts backwards relative to the center of gravity, which causes the plane to nosedive. Mm. But as it nosedives, there's actually less lift on the wings and then they flop open again and that causes the center of lift to shift forwards again and so and so on. And so, yeah. yeah, and so this kind of combination of the center of lift moving forwards and backwards um, and the plane diving up and down is what causes the wings to flap. Now, of Whoa. course, I can't put all of this... On an interpretation on a, yeah. panel. That's not a tweet. <laughs> so it's not a tweet. So what I've done is I've drawn um, this diagram of the bat um, and some lines going up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. And I've said, um, due to the unique shape of the of the flapping bat, it dives up and down, up and down, causing its wings to flap. Wild, you yeah. have to be so succinct. Yeah. I want to come just to do that. I yeah, think. I was yeah. going to say, we, we are coming. Do, we may or may not bring any children with us, no. but we're coming just to play with the paper. Yeah. Look, I'll fold you one after this interview and I'll leave <laughs> it for you in the green room. <laughs> how, much of, uh, how much of Science Works is dedicated to this exhibit? Because I know you have your special exhibit space and you know I've, yeah. I've been to some things there over there. There was a great a moon one. In fact, the background, I don't know if you know this, the background of my Twitter profile, you know how you have a background yeah. picture, is a photograph of me with my hand on a giant moon that was at one of the science works exhibits yes, many that's years right. ago it's in the same space uh right. shane um it's in the special exhibition gallery yep, where cool. we have our um, touring exhibition so this is on until october next year after right. which um it's going to tour around australia we've got three nice. other institutions interested um and it's that size is 600 square metres. So just imagine two tennis courts. Mm, mm. Yeah, so it's quite big, big yeah, yeah. and some giant things in there, like the giant inflatable, the big wind tunnel, the big plane pit, and then lots of um, other exhibits dotted around, um, like arcade games, kind of like where you can play oh, against your family. right, like right. So air, like the air old air hockey golf. type stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, similar, better. even better than air yeah, hockey. Yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah. Do we have time to talk about oh, yeah, one quickly. of them? Yeah, we're gonna yeah just quickly. Yeah, like, yeah. There's one called um, Swirl, uh, which is where you have to use these fans that are kind of situated all around the edge of, the, uh, of a table, and you've got to press and hold down the button, and just using the force of these fans around the side, you've got to get these um, table tennis balls into the goal in the middle. 
And it's so weird because, you know, normally like foosball or whatever, you can mm. kind of flick right. something and you can, yeah, yeah. you can see the force yeah. that you're applying. But with the fan, you can't see the air. And so visitors will be standing at opposite ends pressing, pressing the button. And it's like, why, is it, it why isn't the ball moving? <laughs> yeah. It's because they've got two yeah. jets of air going in the same, same. place. Yeah, and wow. there's some, yeah, one yeah. of them um, has obstacles. And then that creates further swirls and eddies as well, which, yeah. So that's, you know, quite challenging and it's pretty yeah. fun for adults as yeah. well. Yeah. Maybe in October, at the very end of the exhibit, we can we can bring in some small, you know, smoke producing or, or um, dry ice and, and find all the eddies that you've been talking about and oh, see where they're be sitting. Be kind of cool. Maybe you just do that anyway. Get some dry ice in there. You know, a little bit of mist, and uh, all of a sudden you see all the eddies. That would be look. It looks spectacular with all those fans. And, and some band too. has to go in and film it, like yeah. a music <laughs> yeah. clip in there with all of the visualizing all of the different yeah. air patterns. Yeah, absolutely. That'd so be cool. Good. Well, mate, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us uh it's great to hear these new things uh, new experiences uh starting up there at um science works and um folks if you you know you've got something to you need to do over the summer holidays it's um yeah it's all there all about air thank you very much come and play with air that sounds cool uh exhibitions experience developer i do want that title one day that's wild folks we're going to take a break for uh, some important music and perhaps a station announcement and then we'll be back with our next two guests in just a moment you're listening to a triple r podcast discover more podcasts from triple r exploring science technology food books social issues politics and more to listen hit up the triple r website or your favorite podcast platform now, welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now, we have two guests. We have Professor Ros Gleedow, who is a professor of plant sciences at Monash University, and we have her daughter, Eliza Charlie, who's an Australian actor, and we're going to be talking mainly with a lot. Well, we ought to talk to your mum as well. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's good. Now, Ros, you and I, we've interacted so much on Twitter over the years, and with you and as well, we're Indeed. all part of the... You know, Twitter team or yeah. X, whatever it is these <laughs> yeah. days. All part of that psychom. Yeah. You know, but we milieu. were, you know, we got chatting because um, your daughter, Eliza, in the room, uh, of course, has an illness which is pretty intractable, which has been, you know, has changed your life, I guess, Eliza. Tell us, first of all, now you have the term is M E C F S. I'm not even going to try and pronounce the actual <laughs> words. You can give it to me. What is it? Absolutely, myalgic encephalomyelitis. Yep. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Jeez. Uh, Took me a few ta- few practices yeah. the first time as well. You know, it's it's kind of like why do they make it so hard for people? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but now, what what exactly is this? I mean, I know we don't have all the answers around it, but you describe your experience. I mean, what what does this mean for you? Yeah, absolutely. So I first contracted the disease in 2009 following a viral infection. Okay. And at the time, the term mostly used in Australia was chronic fatigue syndrome. It's a term that came out of the US in the late 1980s from a public health um, situation. But actually, myalgic encephalitis is a term from the 1950s, which was designed to accurately describe the symptoms they were observing in an outbreak at a hospital in London without actually knowing what was going on. Mm. And so if you break down that word, myalgic encephalitis, which is a tricky one, uh, a few years ago, there was a campaign that said it's hard to say, it's harder to live with. I think that's very true. Uh, And it basically stands for uh, muscle pain and then inflammation of the brain and spinal cord. Now, 
that's where they started just trying to describe the symptoms. 70 years on, we actually know a lot more about the disease. Mm-hmm. Too few people know it. Um, but it's a condition that affects, uh, it's multi-system, multi-organ. It's quite complex, which makes it difficult to treat. Uh, but those treatments are also difficult because there's been a, a lag in funding for researching on treatments. Right. Um, but it, in the everyday sense, uh, it affects me uh, to various degrees of severity over the last 15 years, sometimes very well, sometimes completely bed-bound. And mostly my symptoms revolve around neuroimmune symptoms, mm-hmm. cognitive function, have a lot of cardiovascular problems. Right. Uh, and then it comes with a fun party of comorbidities such as POTS, which is postural tachycardia, um, uh, EDS, CCI, there's a whole lot of acronyms. At one stage, I thought yeah. I'd follow in my parents' footsteps and have PhDs <laughs> after my name, but instead I've got different letters. You've it's got a letters. ragtag bag of uh, comorbidities. Yeah, <laughs> it's fascinating. So you said this was after a, an infection. I, I, so I had, a, I had a high school friend uh, when I was 18, and she got um, Ross River fever. And mm. um, it that sort of uh, resolved itself after probably six months. Um, and then the next five years or so that I knew her, her life was completely different. Mm. Um, and in fact, I, my, every memory I have of seeing her now is of her in bed. Mm. Um, and she lived three streets away from me. And most of her friends, of course, vanished. Um, you know, we were young, young adults and, you know, you go and do certain things. Mm-hmm. And I was so close. So I would wander around and, you know, we always used to say we were too, too close to drive and too far to walk. It was our joke. Ooh, but, you know, yes. we'd wander around and, and just sit there and keep her company because she had no energy whatsoever. And at the time, chronic fatigue was one of the terms mm-hmm. being used. Yeah. Um, but the medical options for her were, I would just say, zero yeah. um, at the time. And, and in fact, uh, probably less than zero. And this is where I want to sort of go with you because what – what she would often get told was that she had um, anxiety issues and, and things that basically were all psychosomatic and uh, essentially that, you know, the best thing she could do is exercise and drink more water. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> and right. And I thought, oh, okay. Oh, gosh. Um, and knowing her well, knowing her well, um, that was not, you know, um, yeah. not uh, an option that was viable. So so Ooh. in your case, I mean, what, what has that pathway looked like? Yeah, that's right. So I had the... Um, unfortunate circumstance that the time I got sick in Australia, 2009, was really heading into when the this psychosomatic perspective was taking hold in Australia, particularly right. in the medical world. So my experience then was I got put into programs that unfortunately are still recommended, so-called treatments such as graded exercise therapy, cognitive behavioural (laughs) therapy. And both of those, on the surface level, they sound like a really good idea. Mm -hmm. They're based on these proposed ideas that someone is sick and in the long time it takes for them to the long tail of a viral recovery their body becomes deconditioned and they need to recover from that and that alongside that somehow they get imprinted with beliefs that they're sick and that that creates this sort of perpetuating cycle of symptoms now that sort of sounds fine and i was happy to buy into it at the time i spent the last of my dollars going through this program Uh, fortunately it made me worse and Mm. at the time i didn't realize that that's the more common experience is for it to make you worse at best it's ineffective at worst it's harmful yeah and the problem is that we can put forward these ideas that are quite catchy and simple and it's a simple way to understand a complex problem. But at the end of the day, if it's actually making people worse, we have to take another look mm. at why we're pushing this onto people when it's not matching the reality of the burden of what's going on in the body. Yeah. And I've since had the privilege of exploring some other treatments overseas that have improved my baseline, um, but I'm still very ill and I yep. still have a long yep. way to go. So it's interesting to me, this is, so, you know, I have similar experiences in my family with a person with POTS and other, you know, 
mm. other endometriosis and so forth. And as a scientist, um, what I come up against a lot is what I would consider a non-scientific approach to certain healthcare. Now, Roz, you're, I can imagine you know your daughter here sending you emails and so forth and saying, "Hey, mum, uh, what do you think of this?" I mean, ha- how have you approached that? I mean, you're you're a career scientist, and what what do you see? Yeah, well, I think initially I. Well, I knew she was sick and I knew mm. it wasn't psychosomatic, but, you know, you, you follow what the medicos mm. are saying and then you see it making them worse. And when Eliza had this major relapse um, in 2020, yep. you know, that was when we and, and my husband Andy, who's a professor at Melbourne Uni, and uh, we thought we've just really got to look into this. And it became clear to us that there's a disjunct between what the scientists are doing and the research mm-hmm which is extensive and building huge amounts of knowledge and what's filtering through the, the clinicians. Right, right. I, don't, I don't totally blame the clinici- clinicians for that. They've got a lot Enormous to get on, top of, yeah, yeah, on yeah. top of. And this stuff is very um, premature scientifically. And mm. But there's a lot of fantastic stuff. And because we're at universities, you know, I can dive in behind the paywalls mm. I'd send emails to the scientists, you know, in Europe. Oh, hey, <laughs> is this biochemistry going along? And, hey, they're in the same corridor that so-and-so yeah, yeah. is working in. Let's give them a call. And they said, okay, <laughs> we'll set up a meeting for you. So you end up using your contacts. Now, yeah, yeah. you know, obviously not everybody can do that. But um, for us, it's been really good to try and um, drill down into – you know, what is now a considerable body of evidence mm. for yeah. this multi-system disease. Mm. And so what's the status of the disease in Australia? I mean, before we came to the station this morning, I looked it up and, you know, it's in the it's in the government health website. It's listed. All this stuff is there. And, you know, there's some options for treatment and so mm. forth. But but how does that fit in with, uh, you know, something like the NDIS and so forth? Are they Is that all connected up at this point? Um, as far as the NDIS is concerned, there's a little bit of a disjunct again. Um, I had the privilege a couple of years ago of meeting with some advocacy groups in Australia who were working specifically on that. And through freedom of information requests, they managed to uncover um, the sort of advice the NDIS was receiving about this disease and how many people were approved for this disease. Mm. And it turned out most people who had this disease were approved for secondary or other comorbidities. They weren't approved for ME. However, since the Freedom of Information request, they've kind of been put on alert and more people are getting approved. And the other thing that was revealed is that it's unfortunately the same people that are running these so-called fatigue clinics with graded excess therapy, they're the ones that have advised the NDIS and they are advising people to do graded excess therapy before they can be approved. So I have a friend, for instance, who uh, went to the NDIS for an application. She was denied and told she had to do graded exercise therapy. She said, no, I, I know that that will make me worse. Mm. And so she, there was no further recourse for her to apply again. Now, setting aside the fact that the NDIS, NDIS shouldn't be giving medical advice, um, essentially I think what's happening is in this abyss where there's a lack of current guidelines, there's yep. very old guidelines, uh, where there's a lack of current information and current guidelines, other um, sort of policies are falling into place and it's excluding people from the support they desperately need. Mm. So you mentioned, obviously, that this condition comes about after having a virus. W- what are we learning about 
why some people are clearly susceptible and others are not? Because obviously, you know, all of us get viruses at certain times and sometimes we react, sometimes we don't. So mm. I guess what are we learning about that? But also going to the other point about treatment, obviously for a long time the treatment hasn't been appropriate, um, but there's now obviously a lot of research out there that says, well, actually we can try these things. Mm. And, and how is that actually changing your experience but also others who have this condition? So, Yeah, um, great questions, <laughs> absolutely. Um, is With regards to like why some people get it and some people don't, we don't fully understand that in a complete picture, but I think we have to remember, and this is what I've been grateful to learn from having two research scientists as parents, <laughs> we have to understand that if we don't know the full picture, we might still know some of the picture. Yeah, absolutely. So some of those things that are emerging sit in the realm of um, changes to mitochondrial function, definitely changes to gene expression, um, and uh, there's various theories that this disease could look different if we start to stratify patients um, from what virus it was, or indeed some people get it after bacterial infections. Yep. So how is that different? We need more funding to understand these differences more fully, but things like muscle biopsies are showing very clear differences in the muscles of ME patients post-exercise compared with, for example, sedentary controls. Mm. So people who are just right. physically deconditioned, yep. if you compare the two, they're very different. Um, the same with CPET testing, um, so cardiopulmonary exercise tests. If you do a two-day test on day one, the sedentary controls and the ME patients look the same. Yep. On day two, the sedentary controls can repeat their performance. Right. The ME patients are in a well and true crash. Yeah. And we're seeing there's differences in like urine samples with the I'm not going to be able to say it, metabolomics, metabolomics, is that the word? <laughs> metabolomics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have to always be careful with mum because so growing up in a household, I couldn't come to the dinner table with just like an opinion. I had to come with cited references. So <laughs> show, being show very me the data. <laughs> show me the data. <laughs> you want to go on the school camp? Show me the data. So, um... <laughs> Jeez, I'm wondering, do I do that to my kids? <laughs> I don't know. Do you now. know what? In the end, it set me up very well for this time of society that we're in at present. Yeah. Um, as for treatments, um, a key issue again is funding, but also yeah. political and healthcare leadership and will mm, yeah. to find those treatments. So there is many, many, many small sample size studies yep. with emerging evidence yeah. and we cannot get those secondary phase two, phase three trials yeah. um, approved and we really need substantial funding. And the government always comes back and said, oh, we've given this little bit to this and this mm. little bit to this. It is not commensurate with the disease burden yeah. and yeah. we have to make a difference now. It's marketing money. All right, now, Eliza, we're going to take a very short break so you can grab a, a breath and uh, we'll be back, folks, in about 30 seconds. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 R. Uh, we're back, folks. We've uh, got Eliza Charlie and her mum, Professor Roz Glidow, in the studio at the moment. We're talking about MECFS, or as it is otherwise known, myalgic encephalomyelitis. Well done! I've been practicing well while done. you guys have been talking. I've been completely ignoring you <laughs> and just practicing that in my head over and over. Uh, Roz, what, I mean, what's going on in terms of uh, funding in Australia? Like, we've got we've got the... NHMRC, we've got the MRFF, we've got, you know, literally billions of dollars. I know it's never enough, but we have billions of dollars going into medical research. And it seems like some of these so-called rare diseases, I always say rare but high impact, because that's often the, if you look at all of them, actually, they all seem to be in that category. I mean, where is that heading? How are we, how are we progressing? Yeah, so... First of all, in terms of being a rare disease, a big study has just come out of the United States on CDC, and it's about 1% of the population. Wow, so, so it's about not the, rare. Not, not so rare. rare. It's yeah. about the same yeah. as celiac disease or yeah. schizophrenia or any of those others, yeah. so it's much more prevalent. Right. Probably right. a quarter of a million people in Australia currently. Yeah. Yeah. And they're people who are just 
diagnosed. So there's probably yeah. lots of undiagnosed ones as yeah. well. So not rare. Um, the National Health and Medical Research Council did a big um, investigation around about 2018, 2017. The report was released in 2019. Mm. And part of that was the need for research. Right. And they allocated... Three million dollars, which oh, is a whole three million. A whole million, which is not a lot. And wow. they allocated three grants of about a million each. One oh. of them is actually at Uni Melb. Yeah. Haven't ch- chased them up yet. And um, so I think there's seen to be a need, and there is a need for more funding. One of the big issues, well, there's two things. One is to look for a biomarker, and this mm. metabolomics is looks pretty close to this, where you want analyze yeah. all the different chemicals in someone. It's the pilot studies are it's 100%. You can tell people from the MEs and those who don't. So yeah. that's really amazing. But, you know, not every GP is going to run metabolomics on you. So that's, course, yeah. that's just unrealistic. Um, and But there's a lot that can be done in terms of treating symptoms that would give people a quality of life because currently many people are living with what uh, is – uh, similar to people with end-stage AIDS. People right. who work with AIDS and with some of these people are really working that bad. Yeah. But there is a lot you can do to improve the baseline, mm. as they call mm. it, and mm. uh, and manage the energy. And Eliza's mm. been onto this in, in living in Europe. In the yeah. many, they're much more open, I think, in Europe. And they've changed the guidelines in UK and USA about this to make access treatments better. Mm. It seems to me this is one of these areas, and we've we've seen a, a very subtle, almost marketing level shift, not investment level shift in endometriosis, where special centres are starting to start up. Although when you know there's one at Epworth which is pri- privately funded by a donor, the other one's funded by the federal government, are basically just chucking in an extra staff member in the existing GP clinics. Some of them already focusing on women's health, so that's good. But it's trivial investment, but. The interesting thing, of course, is that it's specialised care centres for for a particularly, you know, really problematic illness that has many facets. You know, endo is one of those areas where you know it's just all over the shop, and you the variation in care is spectacularly bad. Some are amazing, some is shocking. And this, to me, seems to be in that same camp where really you need specialised centres. And we do this for cancer, we do this for paediatrics, we do this for many, many different areas in health. And when you talk about 1%, or even even if it's lower than that, um, even if it's 50,000 people, that's... You know, you spread that across three or four major cities. That's that's a lot of people that need yeah. care and and soak up. You know, I don't mean this in a bad way, Eliza, but you know, soak up a lot of medical capabilities. Yeah. Um, you know, even just the number of times you would have gone to GPs and others, and sort of just almost a waste of time. I suspect in yeah. many cases, not that they're a waste of time, but that the lack of connectivity to specialised care is not there. Absolutely, and I think something that we have to consider here is that if uh, th- there is definitely room for um, multidisciplinary centres where you can come together and really tackle this from every side because what we are seeing emerging in the scientific literature is that there's no not going to be one silver bullet, one mm. magic pill. Mm. It is definitely going to be approached from all sides. The problem we have in Australia is that because we have this mindset that the disease is to be approached with exercise and psychology, right. where we do have centres popping up, they are providing graded exercise therapy and <laughs> psychology. <laughs> yeah. So you, And you see this now yeah. with the long COVID clinics that have popped up 
like they've they're born of this same misguided principle that multidisciplinary clinics need to be psychologists and uh, exercise physiologists and physiotherapists and it's all geared towards a slow gradual recovery mm. as opposed to understanding that there's still an active disease going on right, and right. they're not treating that yeah, <laughs> so yeah. instead we need to see multidisciplinary clinics that are cardiologists immunologists yep. neurologists um, and and really putting that all together uh, there is no specialty for this disease we are called an orphan disease we don't belong mm. to anyone and for example right now in the Australian healthcare system I do not have healthcare in Australia. I've gone overseas and right. because I spoke out online about graded exercise therapy, my previous GP sent me a not so kind email firing me as their patient. And so I currently don't have a GP. I don't have a specialist. Right. If I went to hospital, uh, there are things written on my chart that are not true diagnoses. People saying that I had depression or that I had anxiety, mm. which are real and serious conditions. Mm. It's just that the treatment is different. So we have yeah. to be specific. It's not so, what we're dealing with. So Rose, I mean, you and I, uh, I think a bit old world and I don't mean that in an old sense. I mean, old worldly in our, <laughs> our approach to science in terms of falsification, so the Kuhnian model of science and the way we approach science. And I, this is one of the things I've struggled with healthcare is that there are many providers who don't seem to follow what I would consider the scientific method. They seem to sort of jump a step, if you will, to a conclusion without necessarily gathering enough information to make that, or at least to try and falsify that conclusion in any way shape or form this this seems to be the problem here in some sense where there's an old paradigm that we need to shift and yet the the impetus to shift it is coming not from within but but potentially from without you know from outside is that is that how you see this yeah exactly and and i think in terms of the way science progresses there is resistance. I mean, we mm. as scientists are, in fact, inherently fairly resistant to change. But then you have new ideas and mm. eventually you start accumulating, as Kuhn would say, you accumulate the anomalies in the paradigm. Yep. That's absolutely where we're at now. And then you get to a crisis where right. the whole thing's up in the air. So nobody really knows quite what's going on, but everybody now... Uh, all the new people now know something's wrong with the old mm. way of looking at it. Mm. And then you can then in normally in that scientific revolutions, you have a revolution at that point and you come up with a new paradigm. Yep. You don't know what the new paradigm is. And once you're in it, you can't even imagine the old paradigm. Yeah, yeah. But it seems crazy, the old paradigm, doesn't it? It seems like, yeah, yeah, so out of whack. Yeah, yeah you know, whether it's, you know, plate tectonics or helicobacter for the, you know, stomach ulcers, stomach ulcers. any of those things. Yeah. They're, they're those things and they, they're pretty radical. Once they happen, it's okay, but there's always resistance from the old garden. Often change is driven by people outside the field. That's pretty typical. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, it strikes me that there's the sort of the scientific issue which you've just discussed, but there's also this communication issue and understanding. And I often think too with healthcare that, you know, obviously there's brilliant healthcare and brilliant healthcare providers, but sometimes I am frustrated about what's being communicated or their their ability to actually learn, you know, the, the sort of the science that's coming out. And I, I speak to your personal experience. I'm sorry to hear about that. that sounds horrible. And um, that yeah. should never happen, of course, to anybody. So what's being done in that space in terms of actually just communicating, you know, what, what this condition involves, how, how we should treat it, you know, what's actually true versus not in terms of, you know, the old way of doing things versus what the science is now suggesting, et cetera. Mm. 
I mean, I think we always have to start with an acknowledgement and a definition of the problem. Yep. So that's what we're doing here today, and I mm. really hope these conversations continue. Um, uh, before I ever became sick, before I became an actress even, I studied linguistics, so I'm yeah, very right. interested in the language yeah. and culture around this topic. Uh, for instance, there was a very interesting linguistic study using machine learning that came out last year, and they looked, they analysed medical um, chat rooms online yeah. where they're talking to each other, and uh, this disease, MECFS specifically, compared to 20 20 other chronic diseases and conditions was the most associated with negative attitudes, right. stigma, mocking, words were associated like scoff, psychosomatic, laziness, mm. malingerers. And so yeah. we need to start with that. Even things like in Australia, we love to shorten words. Yes. So we go chronic fatigue. <laughs> yeah. Now, let's be specific. Chronic fatigue is a symptom of oh, many yeah, illnesses. Yeah, many things, yeah, yeah. Chronic yeah. fatigue syndrome is a terrible name for a complex disease. Mm. Um, so that's why most of us go with the international terms now in, a light, in line yep. with the international National Consensus Guidelines, which is myalgic encephalitis, ME-CFS. We keep the CFS for a nod to where we've come from, but we need to be accurate with what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. That's where I would start. Rose? Yeah, I think there are organisations doing some good uh, communication. So uh, Emerge Australia. I noticed you had an ad there for someone else called Emerge something Mm, else. Yeah, something else, a separate thing. Yeah, so (laughs) Emerge Australia, uh, emerge.com.org.au. They are like an umbrella organisation and they have fantastic comms on their page and they're now producing a podcast and they're all under a half an hour because there's no way any of these sick people could ever listen to anything that was more than half an hour. (laughs) Um, So that is a really good source of information. I just want to say one of the other things is that even when you're in this sort of crisis and mix at the moment, even the scientists are a little bit at odds because some Mm. people think, well, it's a vascular disease. Mm, Yeah, yeah. and it's the same with COVID too. It is a vascular disease. It's microclots. Yes, we know it's microclots. Then they say it's a mitochondrial disorder. Actually, it is. Um, The Mm. microbiome, uh, uh, you know, of your gut is where it's all at. And so the scientists all think that their little bit is the only the bit, bit. Yeah, but yeah. in fact, yeah. there's all something over there. Some, yeah. you know, neurological. I'm not really on top of all those neurological systems. So, um, but there are people who are very accepting, of course, of all of those. But I think we need to do some kind of principal components analysis and see all these things are actually Absolutely. part of it. Yeah, and yeah. I think the, the the one thing I've found in interacting with many sort of areas of medical care is that the further you go up into specialties, the more siloed that specialty <laughs> becomes from other specialties. And for for many areas, you know, like that's fine. Um, but in complex scenarios, it is not fine by any stretch of the imagination. The, the, the thing that strikes me as so potent here is over the last 10 years, I've said there's two areas that we're really going to learn a lot about um, that I saw is exploding. One was neuroscience, I mean, given, right? But the second is the immune system. Mm. And we have seen this. Even last week, we had this this great... Uh, stuff that came out of the Doherty on the immune system, you know, you know, in published in Science, you know, amazing local research, but the the knowledge of the immune system at the moment is just exploding. If we look at where we were ten years ago and ten years before that, it was kind of almost like the dark ages by comparison to what we know now, and it will feel the same way in ten years and twenty years from now. And so, when you see these system wide sort of problems, mm. I just, especially whenever I hear the term inflammation, straight away my mind goes. Well, hang on. The immune system, it's amazing when it works perfectly. And and it is amazing. It's amazing. But it also causes problems at times, Mm -hmm. and it kills us at times as well. 
And so, you know, there's got to be an element of the immune system here that, you know, hopefully with this huge influx of, of knowledge in the immune system we're, we're seeing at the moment, that we'll see in the next decade, you know, there's hopefully going to be some sort of solution or at least better understanding that, hey, this is a real serious issue of the immune system mm. that, you know, does affect every single part of the body. Why? Because the immune system affects every single part of the body. It's no surprise. Like, that's not that's not. Yeah, I'm a physics guy. That's not rocket science. <laughs> yeah. Actually, the rocket science stuff's pretty easy. Um, yeah, but that it, it's got to be. We've got to start thinking that way. Right? Is that? I mean, what do you think, Eliza? I mean, yeah. you're, you're the one suffering from this. It's yeah, I absolutely think we need that kind of approach, and and it's it's good to recognise that we are on our way, and that there are people working on this. I think one thing that's very difficult when you're more severe I'm, I'm better than I was 18 months ago but you know there was a time where I was very much at the severe end of the spectrum dark room quiet mm. no talking no screens no phones could not get out of um, bed could crawl to the toilet once or twice a day maximum um, you know in that position you really feel like you are alone yeah. and that the cavalry yeah. is not coming yeah yeah and I just uh, the, as I've been more well and able to read more, I'm seeing, okay, the cavalry is coming. There are people working on this and they are, there are developments, as you yep. say, we're going to understand more in 10 years about the immune system. That's a critical piece of this picture. But also those ca- that cavalry needs reinforcements yep. and it reads reinforcements fast because yep. we are um, a, a content warning for anyone around the subtopic of unaliving and, and suicide, but we are losing people in the community almost weekly in Australia, right. globally absolutely weekly. Um, we've lost people in the Italian community that I'm in. We've lost people very, very, very frequently to this disease because it is torture. And when you're in, when you're in a position of 24-7 torture and no one's coming to help, yep. it, mm. you do want to end that suffering. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's very important that we reinforce the cavalry as quickly and as effectively as we can and then get that communication and tools distilled down to our very busy clinicians so they can put it into practice quickly. Yep. But we really need to make that happen quickly. Eliza and Ros, thanks so much for coming in today and talking to us. And I know, you know, it's been a challenge for you just to come in and do this. And we've made as many accommodations as we can, but it's still enormous for you to actually expend what is precious energy, I assume, to yeah. <laughs> um, to come in and do this. So I know you, you'll be able to crash in a moment in yeah. our green room. We're happy for that. But I think you know, as a team, you and your family, I think an incredibly important part of this struggle. I mean, you know, you with your experience, but your parents and, you know, those dinner, those, those dinner table conversations. <laughs> I find that very funny, but um, but important that you're there to support Eliza as well, Ros, with the um, that scientific knowledge and backup and understanding about what science is actually about, and it's not about making assumptions or telling people it's all in their head or telling them to hydrate more or like <laughs> yeah. you know we really have to pull back to a point where the scientific method is applied rigorously because that's how we make progress. So. Thank you both. Um, Eliza, good luck. I hope in a few years we have you back in here and you kind of run up the stairs and, yeah. and run in and, and, you know, you're back to doing all the things you love. But and, until then, take care and, and we really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, appreciate thank it. you, Shane. Thanks, Folks, Shane. we're going to take a short break and when we come back, we'll be doing a little bit of news and Dr. Jen's going to tell us all about her recent trip to Antarctica. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Yeah, welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Gaga on 3 Now, Dr. Jen, you just 
you know, you and I are very jealous because you just went to Antarctica <laughs> for the second time. I know. And look, it is actually really quite, um, you know, I'm actually really conflicted about it, I have to say, because oh. on the one hand I can say, oh, my God, it's amazing, and I can tell you about the penguins and the whales and the seals, and, and you know, I, it's really easy as a biologist to just be so overwhelmed by that abundance yeah. because, you know, there are very few places in the world where you see that abundance and you feel like you are in at least a somewhat wild place. But... You know, equally, it's like, well, we weren't there for a holiday. We were there for a pretty important yep. reason. Um, and so it is for me quite, yeah, I feel conflicted about spending time in Antarctica because I think once you see Antarctica, part of you thinks, oh, my gosh, no one should ever go to Antarctica. Right, yeah. Um, but I do really deeply believe in what I was doing there. And I guess the only way I can honour that privilege of having been there is to talk about it as much as I can yep. and to explain what we're doing. So, you know, I wasn't there as a holiday. I was there as part of the teaching faculty for a global initiative called Homeward Bound, which many of our listeners will have heard about. We've had many wonderful Homeward Bound uh, members and participants mm. on mm. the show over the years. And Homeward Bound is about bringing women and non-binary people with a background in STEM-M together to say, how can we become the most effective, strategic, visible leaders possible so that we can have a positive impact on the planet yep. and, and treat, learn how to treat Earth as, as, as our home, essentially. Yep. And so Antarctica plays a role in that because if you do have the great privilege of going there, you get this immediate um, awareness of mm. what's happening to the planet. And, you know, we saw a lot of things that shouldn't be happening in Antarctica. Right. You know, it's really visible. So, you know, there was a day when it rained on us instead of snowed. You oh, know, it's right. not meant wow. to rain in yeah, Antarctica. Yeah. Um, profound impact of weather on what we were doing because there is so much more ice um, currently on the surface of the water than there should be. So the icebergs, that you know, the glaciers are absolutely carved more than you would expect. There are so many more icebergs on the surface of the water. We had really interesting interactions with the captain of our ship who was saying, you know, I need five people working full-time full all night on the bridge to try and get us safely through this strait because there are so many, so much more ice than we would expect. Wow. And, you know, and he likened it to a chess game where the, the chess, are your, you know, is your opponent's pieces and you've got to try and predict five moves in advance how mm. you can move safely across this strait. Yeah, because you don't want to go so too slow. Ice. Right. I mean, you, you want to go the reasonable pace. Well, I mean, you can't go that fast so, when there's yeah. just so much ice. You know, we weren't in a huge icebreaker. Mm. We had to make sure yeah, we avoided yeah. the ice. And then, you know, we're hearing about these completely unprecedented storms with really unusual weather patterns, all of this weather coming, these very, very mm. strong winds coming from the north, um, spots where penguins should have already been breeding but they couldn't because there was too much snow where there should have been bare rock for them to lay right. eggs on. Right. You know, just all of these things. And when you have the great fortune of having an expedition crew with uh, scientists who've worked in the Antarctic, some of them for decades, really extraordinary scientists saying, you know, this is really different to what it should be at this time of year. Um, so at the moment, there's 1.6 million kilometres square less sea ice than we would expect it's at hard this to, time so, of year. Uh, in terms of states of Australia, have you got a comparator there? Is that like the ACT, Victoria? I, I don't um, have a feel for that in science. Yeah, I can't tell you that. I'm sorry. I mean, I can tell you that one of the really interesting things about the science of climate change in Antarctica is that Antarctica is absolutely massive. Yep. So yep. Antarctica is bigger than all of Europe. Yep. And so when we try and say what's going on in Antarctica, you know, different mm. things are happening in different yeah, places. Yeah, there yeah. are different effects. But the, the fundamental thing to, th to know is that the Antarctic Peninsula, which is where most um, travellers go, 
go. It's the most accessible part. You can get there in two days over the Drake Passage from the right. bottom of Argentina. That is the area of Antarctica that's seeing the most change. So it's already mm. uh, warmed two degrees in the last kind of 50 to 100 years. Wow. And, you know, th- there are people who believe that we are already locked into losing most or all of the West Antarctic ice sheet. Right. So what we have to do is we have to do everything in our power to get to net um, zero carbon emissions yep. so that we save the East Antarctic ice sheet. Because one, if we don't... Which is the big one? East Antarctic and ice is that sheet. the one that gives us like 50 metres of sea level rise Up or something? Up to 70 metres Yeah, yeah, because I remember one rise. of them, like when I heard that number, I was like, okay, there's the little one, which is bad. Still like seven metres. Yeah, 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 we're talking seven metres. the big metres. one, and I was thinking, where's my house? My, uh, I think I'm at about 90. I guess I'm okay, <laughs> but the rest of Melbourne, pretty screwed. Um, yeah, I mean, like that's an extraordinary change in sea level. 90% of the world's ice is in Antarctica. Yeah. And we know yeah. a lot more about what, what's going on in the Arctic because we have much longer records, you know. People, mm. there were, you know, there are yeah, indigenous inhabitants yeah. of the Arctic. Yeah. The Antarctic doesn't have in, an indigenous population. Yeah. So we have much shorter records, but we're seeing these crazy anomalies, you know, in temperature, in sea ice. The prediction, mm. the prediction is that we'll have somewhere between 50 and 150% more days um, above zero degrees in Antarctica. Wow. Like that is, you know, and as soon as you've got, you know, above zero degrees, that you know, the level of melting is, mm. yeah, because uh, you know, zero, is, you know, it's a freezing point. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> One degree of the site, it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's an enormous amount. Yeah, it's like a in huge terms of temperature, amount, like in terms of what happens in terms of states of matter. That, yeah. That's that's the thing, and we had some really fa- fascinating conversations with one of the members of our expedition crew, uh, a guy called Professor Mark Brandon, who's based in uh, in the UK. He's done a lot of fab, you know really impressive um, research. He's a you know he's a polar oceanographer. He was also mm. the advisor to the BBC for Frozen Planet, and we I talked a lot with him about this thing of how do we get people to care about Antarctica because you know what's happening down there is the most distressing thing mm. I've ever experience you know right. there was a lot we cried a lot right. know, we spent a lot right. of our time crying down yeah. there about what's happening to the planet and he said he's decided that he thinks the only thing that's going to make a difference is for us to stop thinking all of the time about what are we doing to antarctica because of course we're having this massive disproportionate impact on what's happening down there hmm. but he said what we need to do is for people to understand that what happens in antarctica doesn't stay in antarctica right. what we do to antarctica is going to come to us and is going to change our planet profoundly yeah. because so much of the the world's water is yeah. down down there yeah. and as soon as glaciers break up and you end up with icebergs icebergs melt faster than yep. glaciers yep. you know ice sitting on water yeah, melts, yeah. Just faster. melts faster yeah. so yeah. you know really i mean I, it was such a privilege to go down there but yeah. i've really come back clear that we we have to share the Do stories more. of antarctica well to let's, get people uh, to, to realize we've got to make change yeah. really urgently well we're out of time today but you're going to be back next week right? i will so we will continue this conversation we'll be doing a whole of highlights next week for the last show of the year folks but dr jim We'll keep talking about Antarctica. You you don't have any other choices. You got to, I can't that's, wait. that's what it's going to be. Uh, good to have you back uh, safely. I know it's Thanks an you, arduous journey. Uh, Ewan, good to have you in the studio as well. Good to be back. Um, Felicia's been doing our Twitter feed today, folks. A big thank Woo. you to all of our guests. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. We're going to hand you over to the team from Eat It. Have a great Sunday, and we'll chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. 
and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Go Go's Twitter account or Facebook page.